Hi, this is Big Talk, Michael Blab here. This week, let's go to our audio files archives for an interview I did with Tony Brewer a few years ago. That interview became a feature article for The Rider magazine dated May 2014. Tony Brewer is one of those Bloomington institutions. He's a published poet, one of the driving forces behind the Writers Guild at Bloomington, a book editor, and an ace Foley artist. Most of our conversation has never been heard on air before, so we can consider this a 90% brand new edition of Big Talk. And now, Tony Brewer. Welcome, Tony. I'm really happy you're here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. You are the hairiest man on earth right now. <laughs> what happened? What did... I have a giant beard right now, and my hair's um, considerably longer than it has been in some years. I've been doing a lot of radio productions over the past three or four years that are kind of period. They've been mostly period pieces, like 1930s BBC that that period. So I've been keeping my hair super super short, like military short, and and a nice clean shave. Beards were for sailors back in the 30s. So. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, no, those projects are pretty much put to put to rest and not on the horizon anymore. So I'm letting my freak flag fly. Oh boy, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm brought to mind. Got my of, winter uh, coat on, you know. Michael Landon yeah. in uh, I was a teenage werewolf. Uh, <laughs> uh, pretty much here. Uh, you are the busiest man on earth. Uh, actually, everybody we have on Big Talk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you know the name of this show <laughs> was Big Talk? Uh, no, but I know you're Big Mike, and I know you talk, so I figure that's where we're at. There it is. Okay. Everybody who appears on this show, by and large, has a million things. All yeah. Renaissance people. You are a Renaissance person, and I've got a list here of all the things you're into. Yes. And I'm telling you, out of what do you do? Do you sleep? Do you eat? Is there any of that that goes I on? Do, I do sleep. I, I eat and sleep very quickly. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, I do. swell. I do. All right, you just got finished with the Burroughs Century. Right, yes. What was your involvement? My involvement was early on, uh, Charles Cannon, who's the, the organizer, um, it was his brainchild, and, and he spoke with me very early on about the feasibility of it and and uh, how it would go over in the community. He really you know, hit a home run on campus um, with the IU Cinema and uh, the Media and communi- uh, Communications Department, and a list as long as my arm of other departments on campus who got involved with it. So, but he he wanted it to be something that the community was involved too. He didn't want it to be just a campus thing, just a university or an academic thing. So he was uh, gauging, you know, as a as an organizer, as a as a event organizer, and as a literary specifically literary event organizer, he wanted some advice and sort of a feasibility uh, feeling out about whether this thing would fly and I, I thought it would be great and it did go over really well in the community the Burroughs Century people I, I keep calling them the Burroughs people mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, Joan Hawkins uh, James Pasca Charles Cannon and Ed Comentale they invited me to uh, produce and perform um, a radio uh, an adaptation of a stage reading of a Burroughs short story called The Junkies Christmas uh, written in the 50s about the 40s uh, New York City my first thought, of course, was, well, let's do it as a radio theater piece. So we ended up doing a, a radio theater adaptation of The Junkies Christmas on January 31st at the back door. It was great. I had uh, some good friends of mine uh, do the music. Uh, actually, Chris Rall is one of the musicians. Uh, John Flannelly and Kyle Kloss were our live musicians. 
And then the uh, people performing were uh, Ian Gurley, Shane Lauder, and Arthur Cullifer, and I did live sound effects for it. Speaking of Chris Rawl, we're hoping that he stops in as we uh, talk with each other yes. today, because he's your partner in another thing that takes up a lot of your time, right. Roller Mortis Films. What's that? Yeah, Roller Mortis. And ironically, I asked him to bring me some more copies of Eight Wheels of Death because I, I need some more DVDs. Chris and I uh, first met through Roller Derby. I'm a Roller Derby announcer, among other things, for the Bleeding Heart Lane Roller Derby. Uh, Chris's wife uh, was a, a skater at the time, too, when we first uh, when we first met. And uh, he was a videographer and photographer for it, uh, for, the, for the league. And uh, one of the first bouts back in, I think, 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, we had a zombie bout. So the two teams that were playing, us and um, a team, I think, from Columbia, Missouri, wore zombie makeup and dressed as zombies and kind of shambled around a little bit and, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally kind of eat on each other, that sort of thing. You know, it was it was around Halloween, so that's what it was. And a lot of the footage from that and some of the uh, photography from that kind of got the, the, the wheels turning about, hmm, maybe we could do, and, and Chris and I thought, wow, maybe we could do a music video, kind of like Thriller, mm-hmm. but with zombies and roller derby. Eventually, uh, we got down to actually writing a script, and I wrote, I wrote the script, and it ended up being a little bit longer than a music video and actually had more of a plot um, it still features lots of live music from local uh, bands, from local uh, musicians, but it eventually became Eight Wheels of Death, the world's first roller derby zombie romantic comedy that I wrote and Chris uh, filmed and directed and edited. And who else worked on that? Kevin Evans, uh, who's also ecstatic. He's one of yes. my uh, roller derby announcer compatriots. Um, Steve Llewellyn, Matt Trauber was our sort of our, our effects guy he did some of the uh, effects work for us. Mike Price started in it. Kel McBride was one of the um, one of the stars in it. So, you know, all local, uh, all local talent. And uh, one of the cool things about it is we used existing, our stock footage was roller derby footage from actual bouts. There and you we go. Kind of, we kind of stitched a plot around the existing footage um, and shot new footage and kind of, you know, created a, a, a fake roller derby about you know with like one corner full of fans that people kept you know the skaters kept going around the same turn every time <laughs> and you know we would push each other in wheelchairs and that's that's how we you know we would shoot inside the pack and we did that by you know pushing so those somebody. are your tracking shots yeah those yeah. are the tracking shots yeah is, you know you put somebody in a wheelchair with a camera and push them around with wow. the, with the pack you know with the skaters so i seem to recall that there was you dressed up as a sort of a 70s era uh, news anchor type guy. You were on the street interviewing right. zombies. That was that was actually, that was before Eight Wheels of Death. And that's that was really, that was sort of the tipping point. That was a, a, a quick last minute um, after a couple of shots of, of uh, rum, I think. <laughs> last minute decision to, hey, let's, let's go photobomb the zombie parade that year and that was i think 2007 i asked chris would you follow me around with a camera and i'll pretend to be a reporter and we'll just do this fake newscast and i'll just make up stuff and we'll just completely improv it and we'll just go around and we'll and we'll you know we'll punk the zombies and um punk the punks right we'll punk the punks and so that was that was sort of the that was sort of a further step 
toward Eight Wheels of Death, we'd already, you know, we had this this great bout footage, and you know, we knew what Roller Girls would look like if they were zombies because we'd already done a mm-hmm. bout like that. You know, this was 2007. I think we started working on Eight Wheels of Death around 2008. Uh, took about a year and a half to get it produced and everything. So really. I think we just hit the crest of the of the zombie wave. It was it debuted, mm-hmm. it premiered at um, the Buzz Chum in 2010 on Halloween, which was a Sunday night. We got about 450 people to come out. Um, a lot of them in costume. This was you know after the the weekend of of uh, Halloween shenanigans, people still came out on Sunday night mm-hmm. uh, for the premiere for this thing. It's a it's a pretty good bad movie. It's uh, if you like B movies. I think you'll like it. If you like roller derby, I think you'll really like it. If you like zombies, I think you'll really like it. If you like any of those things in combination, you'll really dig it. You'll really like it. <laughs> it's you know We've gone to, to other leagues, to other um, roller derby leagues, and a lot of them have passed it around and seen it and can quote it. And that's, that's been really satisfying because that is exactly the, the demographic that we were right. at the time that we were aiming for. Whatever happened to the zombie parade? You know that's a good question. Um, I know one year it got a little out of a little out of control, and I was I was witness to that one. I wasn't um, I wasn't really in the in the throng, and yeah. I wasn't doing the the re- news reporting thing. I was just sort of an observer. Yeah. And I know one year uh, they stopped traffic. You know, usually they start at the sample gates, they shamble their way down to Walnut, down Kirkwood, and they mm-hmm. fill the street. You know, block traffic and all that good stuff, and and it's a great time. And then it kind of ends at Walnut and everybody goes home. Well, one year they got down to Walnut and then turned right down Walnut. and Around shut, the square? Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't go around the square. They just oh. kept walking down Walnut. And they stopped traffic from Kirkwood <laughs> down to about 9th Street. I think they finally lost momentum when all the cop cars showed up uh, about, the time, uh, about the time they got in front, uh, got down to around Jake's or so. And there was... I, you know, I was, again, I was not really part of the throng. I was kind of hanging back because I could see what was going, what was, what was going to happen. And it almost escalated. It almost turned into something really bad because people were still acting like zombies and shambling forward (laughs) when the cops are very patiently and very calmly saying, please step back on the sidewalk, please get off the street. People were still playing like they're zombies. And I thought, man, you... You need to method not, acting. Yeah, you need to not be a zombie for a second, or else you're <laughs> going to get tased. Um, so I think, and that's uh, I don't know if there've been others or if there if there it have if it has continued past that. But um, I know the the one that I you know uh, was uh, doing the, the on the spot reporting that was by far the biggest one I'd ever seen, and it was hundreds of people. It mm. was really huge that year. So I have noticed that you come from a place called Ladoga. And I ask you when we sat down, what the heck is yeah. Ladoga? Uh, well, Ladoga is a is a place. It's a small town in Indiana. I'm from a small town in Indiana, uh, even smaller than Bloomington, even smaller than uh, Bedford. Uh, Ladoga has about 1,100 people. It's in Montgomery County, and it's a little farming community that uh, I grew up in. My mom's family goes back about four or five generations there. Was there a farm involved? Yeah, where yeah, you definitely. were? Yes. Yes. Oh my heavens! Yeah. So you've and had dirt under your fingernails, kind of. Um, I didn't really grow up on the family farm, and that's actually one of my one of my chapbooks is kind of about uh, about that. Is kind of about uh, you know the family kind of grew up on a farm, or at least had a farm experience. We didn't. My f- actual family didn't grow. You know, didn't have a farm or grew up on one. But uh, all of our 
family were farmers and, and a lot of my family are still farmers. So um, I definitely come from, I am of the earth, right? You know, I come <laughs> from that environment, definitely. How did you wind up here? College. I went to Bard College my freshman year, Bard College in upstate New York, and uh, which was great. It was fantastic. It was extremely liberal. My parents didn't really like it, but my sister had uh, picked it out of a, uh, this is great. My, my sister uh, kind of picked it out for me out of a um, college handbook. You know, she was helping me look at colleges and whatnot, and that was that was one that she liked. And I was looking at it and said, "Wow, that's really far away. That sounds awesome." Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Uh, plus, it's a, you know, it's a great school. At the time, it had about a thousand students, so it was you know, it was a very small. I think the average class size was around twenty. My parents weren't really into it. It was a a, a little too hippie, a little too mm. liberal for them. This was this was uh, let's see. I uh, went out there in 89. I went to the 89-90. That was the year that I was there. And it was really expensive. And it got it was going to be even more expensive if I went another year. So I ended up finishing at IU. And my I think my parents thought that, you know, if we put him in a nice, safe state school, he won't be exposed to all that partying. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, so not only did they put me in, you know, one of the top party schools in the country, but I lived at Collins. <laughs> I, yeah, which the very name in, inspires uh, thoughts of debauchery in people. Um, Collins, Collins Living Loving Center, as we always called it. Oh, so. my heavens. And that, but really, that was very fortuitous because Collins is where um, I got involved with a radio, th- uh, a radio theater, just a theater troupe or a, uh, an improv group that met uh, every week down in the basement. And when I got involved with them, I was the only one that was still in school. Everybody else had already graduated or, mm. or was a grad student. And so I was sort of the, um, I, I made it possible for them, to, for them to continue calling it Collins Improv because I actually lived at Collins. Collins is where I met people that I'm still friends with, you know, 23 years later. Wow. Um, that's where I met Kel McBride, who f- has uh, been at the forefront of so many projects that I've also been involved with, Eroticon, Roller Derby, uh, Krampus Night, and, and, and you know, Kel, anytime there's And the a, partying has never stopped, apparently, <laughs> exactly, in yeah, terms of yeah. these projects and right, so right, forth. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, I've always been a, well, I wouldn't say always, but I've been a, 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 a doer and a, a self-motivated kind of guy, I guess. I also, I've just sort of stitched together this all these things that I do are all in my mind, they're connected and they're not just connected because they all happen in Bloomington. They're, you know, it, it all involves writing or words or talking into a microphone, which also involves writing or, you know, it's, it's all literary and somewhat performance, but also involves improvisation and oral performance and, you know, spoken word stuff and recording and editing and mixing which is also part of my day job, which is making books, which is another form of editing and mixing. And mm-hmm. so it's all, you know, it's, it's all related. It just it has, all of it has different pay scales. I guess that's one way of looking at it. You made reference to chapbooks. Yes. You have three of them on the table I right do. next to us. One yeah. is uh, Little Glove and a Big Hand right. by the great Tony Brewer. <laughs> the Great American Scapegoat. And then finally, Hot Type Cold Read. Where right. can someone get these books? Hot Type Cold Read and The Great American Scapegoat are available uh, through Amazon. And uh, Little Glove and a Big Hand is available through the publisher, which is Plan B Press. Plan B Plan Press. B Press. 
but my favorite place to sell books to people is at readings. Yes. So that's 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 where I that's where I sell them. Sort of like um, the business model uh, nowadays of indie bands who are selling their CDs in the back of the room at wherever they're playing yeah. now, and that's how you sell CDs these days. I sat down with a poetry professor um, when I was doing poetry workshop poetry workshops as an undergrad and and this is one of the last classes and I said you know how do how does one do this for a living how does one do poetry for a living and at the time he he said you know there's really two two means two methods of doing it one is you know the MFA route um, which is fine but it it but he was he was quick to quick to clarify that really you become a teacher and you you write on the side you're, mm. you're what you're getting paid to do is teach poetry but you also have all these avenues to publish and, and right. you know display your work. And I said, well, what's the other way? And I uh, said, well, you know, get a job that doesn't prevent you from functioning when you get home, mm-hmm. and just keep writing and just keep sending stuff out. I would add that you sort of start your own scene. You sort of big build your own network, which I kind of did with the Matrix, mm-hmm. which was a, a literary um, and arts organization I ran for about ten or twelve years in Bloomington. And I've sort of brought that experience and and the the sense of collaboration that I like to do. I um, I now work with the I'm now the chair actually of the Writers Guild at Bloomington, and I try and do the same sort of thing. I try and and elevate it so that it's yes, it's local poetry and it's local people that I'm working with, but I try and keep it elevated so that we are uh, on par with any MFA program or or any touring poet that's that's coming through. Now, let me ask you this. I hope I don't get you in trouble here. Okay. But do you ever write poetry at any day job you've ever had? Have oh, sure. You? And, uh, 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 yes. But not now, obviously. No, because, no, no. no. Um, it's, you know, inspiration is cheesy, but inspiration just hits when it hits. And I've gotten very good over the years at, I wouldn't say training myself, but breaking myself of the habit. And I think a lot of people who write are, are you know, you like having the special space, and and here's my table with my favorite pen and mm-hmm. my favorite notebook, and oh, I've got my coffee or my tea, and I'm all set. I'm all good to go. Now, if I just had something to write about, and <laughs> and you know, I can do compulsive writing. One of my favorite exercises is um, uh, thirty and thirty, which is write a poem a day, and I do it in April and November. April because it's National Poetry Month. November because that's uh, national novel writing month mm. i just like to keep up with those guys wow. um, so i can i can do that sort of sit down and write something right now and of course through after you know years of, of workshopping too you you can do that you can sit down and sort of make yourself write something but if you're at work and an idea or a line and i'm constantly reading stuff i'm looking at text all the time and pieces of it occur uh. to me you know i'm not stealing st- Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm stealing stuff from people, yeah. but I'm stealing like words and phrases and pulling them out of context and jotting them down. Or they serve as triggers. Yeah. 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 Even more so is I'm I, I read something and oh wow that's I want to remember that like mm-hmm. you know any sort of factoid that I you know I like everybody likes a good factoid I like science I like science books kind of kind of junky pop science kind of stuff but you know I'm not a I'm not a scholar by any means but. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to read about that kind of stuff, and I'm constantly reading stuff all the time. So, it it sort of behooves me to have a notebook open, 
and I've, you know, I've got plenty of pens nearby pretty much always so that I can jot stuff down. The only time that gets tricky is when I'm driving. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, I would think. But I've uh, occasionally I've keep a tape recorder, you know, or or some sort of like a digital recorder or something, so mm-hmm. I can just record it. But man, I've I have like fished around in my bag and pulled the journal out and flopped it open on the passenger side <laughs> and got a pen and one eye on the road and jot 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 one eye on drifting the road, over to the uh, other lane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did actually write a draft of a poem that way. Wow. It's yeah. Um, and that was not on a highway either. It was not on the interstate. So thankfully, it's not you know not recommended. But no, I've been cashing paychecks for my writing since oh god, nineteen eighty three. Yeah. Okay. And what uh, what people don't really grasp who don't write is that a writer is almost writing all the time. Yeah. Up yeah. here in the head, and you're going over lines. So how much of your day is taken up? with writing in your head too much and not enough you know we've got this long list of things that i do and one of the problems with that is that you know writing is not is has not made it to your list yet of things that i do and that's i used to be much 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 more disciplined about daily writing every day writing every day whether it was purposeful writing or goal oriented writing the idea was not to to necessarily write a poem a day or mm-hmm. write you know anything it was just to just you know journal i i journaled pretty heavily for about 15 years uh, heavily meaning uh, upwards of a thousand words a day mm-hmm. sort of compulsively sort of the first thing in the morning brain dump and i got away from that and on a daily basis it's it's hard to to maintain that and do all the other stuff that you have to do as a as a creative person because part of the creative process is not just making the stuff but you got to collaborate with people if you want the stuff to get out there and there there is the rub yeah. in so many cases because i don't have an agent because i don't have a this or a, you know it's it's all it's all on me plus i work with a lot of other people and kind of you know work with the writers guild that's that's not just me that's helping other writers uh, kind of get their day too so it does require a certain amount of discipline not just to write it down but to keep pushing on it and keep working on it and and I do like that part. I like I like editing. Editing, as a writer, you know, nothing you write, hardly anything you write, is perfect or even good when right. it first comes out. It's really it's in the editing is when it really comes together. So, and that's what people who wish to write have to learn that it's don't worry what it looks like when it comes from your yeah. pen onto the paper, because you're going to work with it. Right. That does take some getting used to and you kind of figure that out you kind of pick that up in writing workshops yeah you know because you get feedback from people but once you leave the workshop once you're no longer in a workshop environment having to to do all that work yourself that's usually what that's what really makes or breaks whether you're going to you know stick it out for a while if you're going to you know hang with it whether it's you know i i consider myself in in a lot of ways, like a hobby writer or a recreational writer, because I don't make my living mm-hmm. by. I make enough. I'm at a point now where pretty much everything I do is all break even. Like I don't pay a lot to do a lot of the creative stuff I do, which is pretty awesome. And that's an accomplishment in and of itself. You know, sure, yeah, I'll take it. It's not a career, so there, the impetus all is all comes from me. It's all just stuff that I want to do. Let's try something here. 
I would like to pick out a random page. Oh, man. And have you read. Would you do All right, that? Sure. All yeah. right. You get to choose the book. I'll, I'll pick the one. random page. Huh? Okay. Okay. Here we go. We're flipping through Hot Type Cold Read, which is a chat book by Tony Brewer. And uh, here it is. This is a poem called Unthinkable. Oh, okay. So, Unthinkable. Raining clothing in the quiet deep, two miles down where the sand has settled. Fish at first give wrecks wide berth, their clouds of fuel and wheelhouse booze. On the way down, staterooms pop like bubbles. Bow hits bottom like a rocket. Debris like ticker tape descends. On land, bells toll and survivors weep. Reams are published on disaster. We rush like ocean toward a gaping hatch, bigger, more luxurious, faster. But all our watches stop at once. The sea resumes its rolling sigh. Graveyards fill like packed suitcases. Here, the clothes are all laid out. Here, the bodies toward heaven sink. You have so many poems here. And when I opened that one up, you said, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Do you remember everything that's in these books? I do, yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, you don't remember them verbatim, word for word, right? Or, some, are, some of them, wow. some of them. I don't, um, uh, I don't memorize a lot of them uh, compulsively. I, I memorize them from having performed them often enough. And where do you do a lot of this performing of the poetry? I do a lot of performing around town and have for a long time. You know, almost any chance I get, I, I like to... Um, you know, any, any opportunity, not so much because, I mean, yeah, partly because, you know, that's, that's part of what I do is the, the whole performance thing and, and getting the word out and, and letting people know what I do or do what I, you know, doing my thing as they say. Um, but I also, I like reading other people's stuff and I like just being a voice on mic and like doing the Burroughs thing, you know, working with somebody else's words or whatever. Um, are you still doing the Fourth Street Festival of of the Arts? Yes, uh, one you're of the, the you're the executive director of the Spoken Word Stage. Right. Yes, that is something that that's actually how I got involved with the Writers Guild at Bloomington. Um, I had just pulled the plug on Matrix after twelve years. It had just it had just run its course. We had definitely succeeded in in our our master plan uh, with Matrix, and just it felt like the right time to sort of set it adrift and and uh, I was enjoying not being in charge of anything for a few months and um, uh, but then I got roped into I mean uh, invited to um, produce a spoken word stage at the 4th Street Festival of the Arts and Crafts by the at the time the very fledgling uh, Writers Guild at Bloomington which was uh, uh, sort of a new consortium of uh, uh, artists of, of all genres we're up to about 230 members now so yeah, so the uh, I was able to from you know over a decade of promoting and putting together and producing literary events through Matrix, I was able to kind of take a lot of that knowledge and know-how and just kind of pour it into a, a single event, which is a pretty big one. It's a two-day uh, spoken word stage, you know, from from ten to six both days. Tony Brewer, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. 